Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Bavaria, Dr. Uh, Budwani, and Prachans for this uh, beautiful opportunity to have a CTSNet roundtable discussion at this very uh, excellent meeting, the North American Aortic Valve Repair Symposium. Um, we are in Philadelphia today, and uh, it's a beautiful city. And just to uh, set the scene before we kick off, um, we've heard a lot about uh, bicuspid aortic valve related to the aortopathy and uh, the things that uh, uh, people innovate in terms of operating on uh, bicuspid aortic valve patients in terms of uh, valve repair and uh, aortic valve replacement or aortic root repair and replacement. Uh, there are surprisingly little data in the current literature that definitely track the incidence of bicuspid aortic valve related aortopathy and its complications in particular to aortic dissection. In this time and age, definitely, definitive surgical recommendations based on aortic diameter are not robust and good enough. And for this reason, uh, we've lined up today for you an excellent panel. It can get better than this. Uh, I've got on my left-hand side Dr. Joe Bavaria from the Hospital of University of Pennsylvania. And also next to him, I've got uh, uh, Dr. Joe Caselli from Texas Heart Institute, Baylor College of Medicine, Houston. Uh, and also next to him, I've got uh, Dr. Munir Bidwani from the University of Ottawa Heart Institute. Um, and also next to him, I've got Dr. Uh, Jibreel Khoury from the Clinique Universitaires, uh, St. Luke, Brussels. I hope I'm getting it good this time in French. And next to him, I also have got uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Thomas Gleason from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And next to him, I've got also uh, Dr. Edward Chen. And Dr. Edward Chen is from Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. And also next to him, I've got uh, 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 Dr. Himanshu J. Patel from the University of Michigan Health System in Arbor, Michigan, and also Professor uh, Hans Henrich Siever from the Clinic for Cardiac and Thoracic Vascular Surgery, Lubeck, Germany. Thank you very much all for joining us. I'm gonna kick off by question to Munir. We're gonna take things back to the basics. Um, we've had a lot of uh, controversies on how do we approach uh, things. I'm sure the viewer on CTSNet would like to know. Um, Munir, the question is, what is the relation between bicuspid aortic valve and aortic dilatation? That's a, uh, that's a loaded question, uh, obviously. <laughs> uh, we can use the rest of the time of the panel to just talk about that. Um, well, I think there are certain things we know and there's a lot of things that we don't know. I think we all agree that uh, it's a combination of factors that links bicuspid aortic valve disease to aortopathy. Uh, there are hypotheses that link 
hemodynamic factors to aerotopathy, and there are hypotheses that link molecular and genetic factors to aerotopathy. Uh, the reality is that it's probably a combination of both and different players uh, in, in different patient populations or subpopulations that occur. Great. Thanks, Thanks for this. Uh uh, burst of answer, Emanir. I'm just going to turn the question now to Edward. Ed, is hemodynamic burden in bicuspid aortic valve a main contributor to aortic dilatation? You know, I'm not sure we really know the answer to that, to be honest. Um, certainly there's a lot of uh, theoretical uh, postulation about the post dilatation of the hemodynamic stress, but uh, combined with the aortopathy, the inherent um, flaws in the, in the integrity of the tissue, but uh, whether we can say that with the how much that contributes from a quantitative level is difficult to say. Great. Thanks, uh, Edward. Professor Saver, um, is there an elusive link between aortic wall histology and echocardiographic anatomy and bicuspid aortic valve? Is there any uh, is there an elusive link between the aortic wall histology and echocardiographic anatomy and bicuspid aortic valve? Or should I just rephrase it? Can, can this have an, an implication on, on a prophylactic uh, uh, surgery? So basically, if the anatomy of the aortic valve as seen in the echocardiography or as known from the histology, could we move on to have a prophylactic surgery on the patients based on these two factors? Yeah, you mean if there are any echocardiographic uh, yeah. signs that do? Yeah. I, I do not think um, that there are any echocardiographic signs that you can remove the ascending aorta prophylactically. I think it depends on uh, a lot of other factors. Um, first of all, I think it is, um, it is the size that determines uh, if we replace the ascending aorta. And this again is. Is related to the age of the patient. I think it's very important to to relate the size of the uh, the ascending aorta to the age of the patient. And um, the the most important question is how can we see from outside the patient if there is any need to replace the ascending aorta? And at the moment, we don't have any factors that tell us uh, which which um, valve, uh, which which uh, wall histology. Is, is frail or how, uh, why we should replace the ascending aorta. I think there is a, a very interesting biomarker coming up, and this is the glucation end product as shown in the presentation from Philadelphia. And I could expect that uh, in the future we will have some biomarkers telling us that there is some weakness in the ascending aorta, and then we have more ground to do a prophylactic replacement of the ascending aorta and uh, I will, um, I'm, I'm very eager to see what's going on with this biomarker. Thank you, Professor Siever. Uh, prof uh, Dr. Bavaria, Professor Siever mentioned something about the aortic size. The, uh, he, he touched base on the sizing, although the guidelines now keeps changing with subcommittees meeting for a review on the previous guidelines that were uh, published in the past. My question to you, is diameter of the ascending aorta and association with bicuspid aortic valve a reliable measure? Uh, should we go with what uh, Professor Siever just mentioned now? Well, I think that uh, the size is what we have. Um, it's the easiest thing to measure. Um, it would be nice to have some other, uh, some other uh, things that we can measure to help us 
determine whether somebody should should get their bicuspidotic valve aorta replaced. Um, for example, uh, it would be nice to have either CTMR or some other imaging echo, some imaging method to be able to determine what the wall thickness is, because um, uh, that would give us a better index of what the stress equation would be uh, for these particular aortas, uh, because wall thickness is very important, and wall integrity uh, uh, is as, as a marker for uh, for wall thickness, such as a Marfan's patient may have a very thin wall, and AI patients have thinner walls than AS patients, for example. So it would be nice to have that, but we don't have that uh, that level of clarity at this point. So the other issues uh, that might help us uh, would be genetic testing, uh, which I think is coming around. It's not there quite yet, but there's a whole bunch of uh, different genes that that we may uh, uh, pull the trigger. Uh, for earlier uh, aortic, valve, aortic replacement uh, if they're positive, such as SMAD3 and uh, ACTA1 and, and, and things of, of, of that nature. Um, I do, however, believe that, that, that the uh, diameter uh, is kind of crude. Um, we know for a fact uh, that there's many dissections uh, at uh, 4.5 centimeters, for example, uh, so that, so that the uh, uh, guidelines are not perfect. Uh, and would not, uh, you know, not to, uh, take into consideration those kinds of, of patients, although uh, that, that is living in the denominator and not, not so much uh, the numerator, which is very, a, a very important uh, concept. Um, so diameter is, not the, not, is what we have, but it's certainly not uh, everything that we need to know. And as Dr. Sievers uh, pointed out, uh, and many others, uh, including in the guidelines, uh, I, I personally believe that uh, we, need, we need to modify the diameter issue uh, for our patients. For example, he was talking about Z scores uh, and things like that. I, I really do believe uh, that uh, BSA measurement, which the Canadians have shown us in their guidelines, that uh, aortic diameters related to BSA are incredibly important uh, and, and, and maybe a lot more important than diameter itself. Thank you, Dr. Ferrier. That's excellent. Uh, Dr. Caselli, uh, faced with an 18 years old uh, female patient, uh, who has an aortic uh, regurgitation and an ascending aorta, which is uh, 4.2 centimeter. Uh, uh, what's, what's, your, what's your take on that? How would you approach this patient? Would you uh, replace the valve with, with a bantol uh, uh, and you will uh, uh, sort the ascending aorta, or will you just go ahead with the valve alone and uh, wait for a later stage? Given your uh, extensive experience in aortic surgery, what's your take? Yeah, well, our our general um, uh, cutoff in a young patient like that is about four centimeters where we begin to address the aortic. We have to be there for the aortic valve. And yeah. I think in a situation, the kind of case you just described would uh, be probably very minimal to a, you know, a David uh, a reconstruction uh, and then uh, replacing the ascent and aorta. Uh, you know, in the bicuspid aortic valve, we, we think, you know, the uh, proximal aorta from the annulus all up through the level of the innominate artery is from the same genetic origin uh, embryologically, uh, neural crest cells. So, you know, frequently we see that dilatation go all the way up to the innominate artery and then it tapers through the arch. And um, so our, our default in that situation is to do at least a bevel hemi-arch okay. and, uh, and manage all that tissue at one operation. Thanks, Dr. Sully. Um, uh, uh, Tom, um, should auras be uh, uh, in patients with bicuspid aortic valve really be resected at an early stage uh, than a tricuspid aortic valve? The aorta? Yeah. Uh, again, that would depend on the age 
of the patient, the other factors that would be in consideration, and the pathology of the valve. So I, I don't think I can answer that as a blanket one way or another. You'd, you'd have to further define for me because, frankly, uh, the issues are at hand are sex at a younger age would play into it. Yeah. Females who want to have children, that would weigh into what we're going to do at that particular index. Um, degree of aortopathy present as measured by <coughs> diameter, family history of dissection or aneurysm would play into it. So I, I, I qualify the answer simply to say that we, we can't make a blanket statement acro across all populations of bicuspids. But generally speaking, I would say in the absence of valve disease that we're too aggressive currently, um, that size alone is not an adequate indicator. There are, there are biomarkers coming down the pike. There are other means of, of measuring aortic wall disease that, that we still don't know enough about. The, the reality is that the, the guidelines, as you were alluding earlier, are based on very little data and a lot of expert opinion. There are only two really good prospective uh, studies that followed bicuspid patients, the Canadian Registry and the Olmsted County 10-year uh, uh, study. Those are the only two studies of prospectively followed bicuspid populations. And they would argue that we shouldn't intervene until they're larger than, than, than the current guidelines suggest. So I think we're far from giving a broad statement. Sure, yeah. uh, Jabrin, um, uh, you you have mentioned uh, in your in your talk earlier something very nice that I picked on um, that we should respect the uh, aortic root. Uh, my question to you is: Can we safely repair or replace the uh, the bicuspid aortic valve without replacing the ascending uh, aorta? Uh, or does this really apply to everybody, uh, in particular to marfan patients? Can we, can we repair or replace the uh, bicuspid aortic valve without replacing the, re replacing the ascending aorta, um, especially in marfan patients? Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, in, let, let's go for the bicuspid uh, valve. Uh, in regurgitant bicuspid aortic valve, I think the the, uh, the best or in, in our experience technique to do the this repair and to have a stable repair, durable repair is the, to replace the root and to reimplant the valve inside of this uh, this nerve root. That's what the bicuspid. Now, to extend it to the uh, to the uh, ascending aorta, we are reviewing our experience now over the 15 years to see, because we are not aggressive replacing the ascending and the arch, and we are, we are reviewing all those patients, and the first result, we don't have yet uh, the, the whole, uh, uh, let's say, uh, statistical analysis, but first analyze, I think, uh, we don't have a lot of recurrence or, 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 uh, of, of, uh, or, or uh, development of a new uh, aneurysm distal aorta or, or uh, ascending aorta or the arch. So I'm really not aggressive to replace the hemi arch. We replace as much as possible and the ascending aorta while we are ascending the root. But we don't go for, for uh, unless we have a really uh, aneurysm at this area, we don't go for, for hemi arch or, uh, or uh, yes. just for the, the bicuspid. 
I don't have a lot of marathon patients, but we, we follow the same, the same, uh, same strategy. We stop usually uh, at the, at the, at the uh, drunkers. Okay, okay. thanks, Jibreen. Uh, question to you, Himanshu. Uh, uh, um, what, what, are, what are the risks uh, of late aortic, aortic events after an isolated aortic valve replacement for a bicuspid aortic valve stenosis with a concomitant ascending aortic dilatation? What are the risks? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I totally understand the question. So, yeah. if some, somebody has a aortic aneurysm or a slight. So somebody, somebody, come, somebody has uh, somebody comes to you uh, was uh, was for an isolated aortic valve replacement for a bicuspid aortic valve pathology, in particular a stenotic valve, uh, uh, and and you would want to you would want to operate on this uh, patient in particular, and and at the same time concomitantly replace the ascending uh, aorta for a dilatation. Uh, irrespective of the of the size, as as touched based on by uh, Dr. Bavaria and this members of the panel, what what do you think are are the risk in your mind that this patient might come back in the future for a redo uh, procedure? Well, I think it's I think the risk if you're taking out the if you take the aorta out of the equation, the risk um, is more related to what kind of valve you put in. Yeah. So um, you know your valve substitute may actually determine the timing of the subsequent operation. I think if you, um, if you take out the extent of the aneurysm, particularly in some of these patients, as Dr. Coselli suggested, where the dilatation goes up uh, beyond the uh, innominate artery, I think you would likely remove a lot of the risk of, uh, of dissections. Probably not zero, my guess, but I suspect most of it. Great, great. Dr. Bavaria, a question again to you. How would you go? Um, what do you think? Are we pushing the limits for uh, for correction of leaflet prolapse and valve or valve preserving aortic uh, replacement? Is there a threshold or a limit that we should be aware of? Well, um, uh, my answer to that question is is that uh, we have these regurgitant valves. Um, historically, we've been replacing these valves. Replacing aortic valves uh, is not without its problems. Uh, both midterm and long term, no matter what prosthesis you use, most of these patients are young. Uh, and I think we need to follow the mitral valve repair paradigm of 20 years ago and start to learn how to repair uh, repairable, uh, you know, a aortic insufficient bicuspid aortic valves. Uh, and I think patients will be better off for it uh, because the only other option for them that is really a good option is the Ross procedure. And the Ross procedure is actually not that great for AI. Uh, so. Uh, I think this, uh, that we, the community, uh, needs to push this. We need to learn about it. We need to improve it. And we're all following uh, Dr. El Khoury and Dr. Uh, Lansac uh, in this regard uh, uh, as we try to create a new uh, uh, paradigm and blaze new paths. And it's incumbent upon us to do this for our patients. I really, I really believe that. Okay. Uh, Dr. Caselli, um, uh, I haven't heard anything that has been touched based on reduction aortoplasty. Uh, is, it, is it something that is out of fashion? Uh, is there something that, uh, that uh, instigated medical legal uh, uh, problems? But in, in general, is reduction aortoplasty a safe and durable treatment for borderline dilatation in patients with bicuspid aortic valve? What do you think? It's, pro it's probably safe. Uh, how durable is, uh, is, is questionable because, again, this is another area, as Joe said, 
that we sort of live in the uh, numerator and don't really see the denominator. Um, out, out in our institution, it's almost zero incidence of that particular approach, and uh, so we're, we're not going to have that kind of data, but uh, we do see patients coming to us. We see the numerator where aortoplasties have been done, and they continue to be problematic. They dilate, they dissect, et cetera, and then we're dealing with the, uh, the secondary option uh, uh, later on. There's some sort of modifications of that. One would be the uh, Florida sleeve, and the other would be the, um, uh, uh, oh, God, what is it called? The one, the one with uh, Treasure and those guys are doing. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I forget, forget the name of it, where they do a, uh, a three-dimensional uh, CT reconstruction yeah. and then uh, formulate a device specific for that particular individual that's kind of like a Florida sleeve, but they've used it in uh, connective tissue disorders, et cetera, with, with some success. I think it's something we have to watch. Okay, great. Now, just going to uh, uh, push this question to the panel. Uh, the answer is yes and no. This is just to determine uh, an overall consensus. Uh, the ascending aorta should be replaced less frequently in patients with bicuspid aortic valve. Who is with and who is against? We'll start with you, Joe. So the question, uh, the motion is uh, the, the ascending aorta should be resected less, less frequently frequent. than presently. Yeah. Uh, I think I agree with Tom uh, Gleason. I think the guidelines are a little bit... Um, too aggressive, so I would say it should be done a little bit less frequently uh, than it's done right now. Dr. Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree with that, except I, I think what's been alluded to and what we're really going to need to be is it's probably overdone in many cases based just on size, but in other circumstances where we just don't have the phenotypic and aortic uh, wall quality data that, that we need that maybe in some cases it's probably not done where it should be done. Thank you, Dr. Sally. When you? I would say it's really driven by your own outcomes. I think if you can do it safely, then yes, uh, the answer is yes, you can be more uh, aggressive with it, but uh, you have to really understand what the impact is on the patient in your hands. Okay, great. Jabreen. For me, it depends mainly on the, uh, the valve. If you can preserve the valve, maybe you can be a little bit aggressive. If we have to replace the valve, that's another question. Okay, great. Tom. Yeah, I agree with the two Joes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's done more aggressively than it needs to be. Okay. Hey, mind you. I, th I think it's done probably more aggressively than it needs to be, but I wonder in this era of whether you believe in TAVR and SAVR, um, whether, you know, it may be reasonable. Okay. Professor Siva. Um, I think we have to adjust it to the, uh, the patient situation. And um, in the young patients, we have, uh, for, for me, we have to be more aggressive because in, uh, in, in my experience, over 1,500 patients, the replacement of the ascending aorta has very good results over 10 years now. And um, with uh, non-replacement, doing nothing with the ascending aorta, we do not know if patients died, if they died from a dissection or whatever, they, they, or they died not from the dissection. So, I would uh, recommend, or I, in my practice, we are more aggressive in younger patients with a diameter with, uh, which is out of the, the normal range with a set value more than three, and uh, we uh, adjust to the guidelines in older patients, and I think it has to be adjusted to the patient situation. 
Okay, T touching, touching a, a few figures on the guidelines, when you look at the literature, which I'm sure the guidelines was based on it, you would notice that uh, a stemming aortic aneurysm tends to occur in patients who have an underlying uh, uh, bicuspid aortic valve in the literature between 7% and 79%. So there's a huge skew in the data that is out there. Whereas for an aortic dissection or a bicuspid aortic valve, there is a nine-fold increase of chances for a patient to have an aortic dissection with an underlying bicuspid aortic valve, uh, uh, with an underlying bicuspid aortic valve for in, in comparison to the normal population. Anyway, this is, this is, this is still a, a big debate. Uh, it's beyond the scope of this meeting. I'd like to thank you all uh, for, for the opportunity to be uh, here today. Uh, I'd like to thank once again Dr. Bavaria, Dr. Bidwani, and uh, uh, Prachance for the opportunity to have this discussion and to host CTSnet uh, in this uh, excellent meeting. You've been with Mohammed Bashir, CTSnet, the Yorick Portal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening to CTSnet to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.